When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub. I'm an Ernest May Fellow in History and Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Greg Brew, who is a Henry A. Kissinger postdoctoral fellow um, at the Jackson School of Global Affairs at Yale University. And today, we're going to be talking about one of his two new books, Petroleum in Progress, Uh, in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. He's also the author of The Struggle for Iran, which he co-wrote with David Painter. We have a separate episode talking about that book, uh, and you should definitely check it out if you're interested here on my channel at New Books Network. Uh, Greg is a historian of Iran, oil, and the Cold War. Um, He's written numerous uh, articles on different aspects of the Pavlovi uh, petrostate in places like Texas National Security Review and the International History Review. Um, And this book that we're going to be talking about today, Petroleum in Progress in Iran, was published with Cambridge University Press uh, in December 2022. Um, So, Greg, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Grant. Thanks for having me back on. Um, So I think it's a good place to start. I think, you know, a lot of people have very familiar levels of knowledge about Iran. So I think a good place to start is to give our listeners an overview of what Iranian politics and society is uh, in the first decades of the 20th century, um, sort of going into World War II. What's the state of play in Iran? Sure. So um, the book is, you know, the book is a couple of different things. It's a look at the rise of the Iranian petrostate. And it's an examination of U.S.-Iranian relations in the early Cold War in the middle of the 20th century. But I think, uh, as you say, I think it's very useful to sort of set the stage and give a little bit of background. So Iran in the 19th century was a, for all intents and purposes, an absolute monarchy. It was ruled by the Qajar Shah, the Shah or king of Iran, ruled it as the shadow of God on earth was one of his many titles. And uh, Iran had no constitution. It had no formal uh, political uh, framework in that sense. The Shah ruled as an absolute monarch in um, 
sort of a de facto sense or de jure sense rather. In reality, the Shah, the Khazar Shah was a fairly weak ruler. He His rule was based on support from a variety of different political factions, the clergy, the Shia clerics of Iran, the aristocracy, the bazaar merchant class, etc. Um, and at the same time, over the course of the 19th century, Iran became increasingly uh, influenced or uh, pressured by foreign powers. So what is what is occasionally referred to as the great game waged between the British and Russian empires in the 19th century, much of that game was waged inside Iran. Uh, and another additional important element of that was economic influence and economic intervention. Uh, over the course of the 19th century, the Qajar Shah grew increasingly short on funds, and as a result, he offered a series of economic concessions to the British and the Russians uh, in order to raise money. And as a result, much of Iran's economy came to be influenced or even controlled by foreign powers by the early 20th century. And this is where my story sort of kicks off, because in 1901, the Qajar Shah signed an agreement, what was known as a concession, with a British uh, industrialist by the name of William Knox Darcy. And the Darcy concession gave the British, uh, originally Darcy's firm, and then later a new oil company or a new company, it gave it the power to uh, search for, exploit, produce, transport, and sell any oil found within uh, a fairly large portion of Iran's territory. Uh, and this is really the beginning of Iran's place in the international oil uh, system. It's the beginning of my story, the story that I lay out in Petroleum and Progress in Iran. It's the beginning of Iran's oil industry. Uh, and it's sort of the uh, the launching point for uh, the story that I'm trying to tell, which is how Iran fits within a global oil economy, but also how oil is integrated locally within Iran and within Iran's economic development and the role played by foreign actors in both of those processes. So, that that's a really you know great overview of of what's going on in Iran in the in the, in the first part of the twentieth century. Um, some of our listeners might be uh, familiar with the fact that Iran in nineteen forty one was uh, invaded by both the Soviet Union um, coming from the north into Iran and and Britain coming into the south. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about how this sort of dual invasion and occupation, which is, I think, meant to keep the Germans away from potentially accessing Iranian oil to help them try and take over the Soviet Union. I was wondering if you could talk to us about how this impacts uh, Iranian politics and society. Sure. So, yeah, the war, the invasion of 1941 is um, really where the book sort of takes off. Um, I do a little bit of background on the pre-1941 period, but 41, the war is really where the book begins. And the reason for that is, you know, prior to 1941, I mentioned the Qajar Shah, the Qajar government. Um, the Qajar Shah is eventually overthrown in the 1920s. Uh, in a military coup in February of 1921, there was a military leader by the name of Reza Khan who marched on Tehran, Iran's capital, and sort of overthrew the Qajar government, took control of the government. Several years later, Reza Khan um, had himself crowned Shah, and his name was changed to Reza Pahlavi. This was the beginning of the Pahlavi dynasty. Uh, and the new Pahlavi Shah, usually referred to as Reza Shah, is sort of the father of modern Iran, right? He... he organized Iran's first modern military. He uh, codified a new legal code, uh, launched Iran's modern educational system, uh, 
started some of its sort of earliest industrial projects. So Reza Shah is generally referred to, even by his critics, you know, and those who are very critical of the early Pahlavi period, Reza Shah is generally regarded as uh, one of the most important uh, figures in early uh, 20th century modern Iranian history and sort of the father of the modern Iranian state. But Reza Shah also had a very complicated relationship with the British and the British Oil Company. And in 1941, um, with the outbreak of war between uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, both the Soviets and the British, now sort of uh, new allies in the fight against uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany, uh, both the Soviets and the British became very concerned about German influence inside Iran. Um, The British were very concerned about their position in the southern Iranian oil fields, uh, the position that they had built up since the 1901 Darcy concession, which was it, it had sort of blossomed, flourished into a major industrial enterprise that the British controlled uh, for all intents and purposes as a colonial enclave. And what they wanted to do was use Iran as a means of delivering supplies and material support to the Eastern Front. Uh, So the invasion of August of 1941, yes, it was launched uh, because of concerns that the Germans had influence over Reza Shah's government, uh, but really that was kind of just a pretext. (laughs) The real reason reason for the war and the subsequent occupation was to use Iran as a supply line to deliver supplies, including oil, including large uh, quantities of oil and refined products, to the Soviets uh, that they could use in their fight against the Germans. So the British and Soviets, they do. They invade Iran in August of 41. They depose Reza Shah. Uh, He ascended to exile, uh, eventually ending up in South Africa, where he dies only a few years later. His son, who is 21 years old at the time, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, becomes the new Shah of Iran uh, as a very young man, sort of untested, inexperienced. Um, But it's also in 1941-1942 that the United States becomes involved, uh, a country which had hitherto not really had much of a diplomatic relationship with Iran. There, of course, had been diplomatic relations uh, and a certain amount of history, but substantive U.S. relations with Iran really starts in uh, World War II. And this is also where U.S. involvement, or if you like, U.S. entanglement with the issue of Iranian oil really kicks off. Uh, so this is, you know, this is material that's covered in chapter one of my book. Uh, it's been covered by historians elsewhere, but it's really where the story that I'm trying to tell uh, has its beginning. You know, the U.S. involvement in the development of the Iranian petrostate, U.S. concerns over the control and use of Iranian oil, not only within an international oil economy, but also for the local development of Iran's uh, sort of nascent petrostate, really gets its start in the early 1940s. And, and how do Iranians, you know, both elites and, you know, perhaps more ordinary Iranians, how do they view the fact that they're being occupied, occupied, excuse me, not by one, but by two different um, foreign powers during World War II? Well, it, it, as you could probably understand, the occupation was extremely unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there had been there had been decades of um, uh, discontent and opposition to the idea of foreign powers having control and influence within Iran. Mm. Now, going back to the 19th century, this was, it's, it's an important ingredient in the birth of modern Iranian nationalism, really, uh, is this idea of Iran as a country kind of surrounded by uh, hostile great powers, uh, embattled, influenced by foreign uh, powers, foreign agents, uh, struggling to achieve its independence. And the war, the occupation, uh, uh, naturally inflames these 
feelings, while at the same time having a very substantial deleterious physical impact on Iran, right? The economy is shattered by the occupation. The government is greatly weakened. The army is is sort of wiped out and has to be rebuilt from scratch. Um, Reza Shah leaves. He His uh, son, the new Shah, is a fairly weak ruler. He has to deal with uh, these occupying powers. Um, there's a se- sequence of governments of prime ministers who uh, sort of struggle against the Russians and the British while simultaneously trying to draw support from the Russians and British in order to balance one against the other. There's this concept in Iranian politics in this time, this concept of positive equilibrium, that you could use one great power to balance the other. Um, really in order to maintain Iran's territorial integrity, right? This is the 1940s. It's the the height of colonialism, right? There's still uh, major European colonies throughout the world. Iran is not formally colonized, uh, but there's always a concern that the country will be chopped up by the British and the Russians. So while there is uh, tremendous antagonism and hostility to the idea that Iran is being occupied, uh, Within diplomacy, within uh, elite politics, there's a great deal of, if you like, collaboration with the Russians and the British to balance one against the other, while figures like the Shah and some who are close to him see the United States as a very useful and valuable ally, as a third power to be brought in to help balance out the the hostile influence of the British and the Russians. So it's a very complicated political milieu that Mm. the United States enters (laughs) uh, sort of without really uh, having a full sense of what's going on and kind of stumbles through uh, over the course of the 1940s. The first chapter of the book details some of this, um, particularly the work of uh, some U.S. advisors who are trying to assist uh, the Iranian government's uh, financial reorganization. There's a section on uh, quite a famous advisor by the name of Arthur C. Millspaugh, who was active during this period. And of course, this is the time where we start to see U.S. interest in Iranian oil the exploitation of Iranian oil really kick off, right? And, and so after after World War II ends, and you sort of have the beginning of you know the Cold War and the superpower competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, how are both uh, the superpowers viewing Iran? I mean, surely the oil is playing a role, but what what is their view of Iran that's sort of um, taking hold within the emerging Cold War international system? Right. So you know. To set that up, I think I'll I'll take the Soviet side first. Okay. Um, there's um, there's relatively little on the Soviet Union in my book, uh, although there is um, a growing body of scholarship on Soviet-Iranian relations, particularly in this period, particularly in the late 1940s. Um, the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin, as well as subsequent leaders, uh, had a great interest in Iran for obvious mm. reasons. Um, Iran and the Soviet Union shared a 14, 1,500-mile-long border. I mean, this is this is obviously this is at a time where Central Asia is part of the Soviet Union, where the Caucasus right. is part of the Soviet Union. So the two states shared a very, very long border. They shared a long historical relationship, right? The Russian Empire always been sort of present there next to Iran. Um, the, there's a great deal of sort of cultural, linguistical and ethnical, uh, eth- uh, ethnic, uh, sorry, <laughs> ethnic intermingling in the Caucasus right. region, right? Northwestern Iran. Uh, has a considerable uh, Azeri minority uh, Mm. and so forth. So there was a Soviet interest in what was happening in Iran. There was a Soviet interest in maintaining a sphere of influence in Iran for security reasons, right? The Soviet Union and Russia before it had been invaded many times. And there was a concern that in order to ensure security along its southern border, there needed to be a Soviet sphere of influence inside Iran. And this concern, this interest is linked to oil. 
there was oil uh, in northern Iran. There still is oil in northern Iran. And in the 1940s, uh, 1944 specifically, um, while the British and the Americans are competing for concessions, a new oil concession inside Iran, uh, the Soviets arrive in October of 1944, and they demand a concession of their own covering the five northern borders of Iran. Um, and this causes great alarm uh, among Iranian elites uh, in the Iranian government, the sudden interest that the Soviets have in, in uh, getting their own oil concession. But from the Soviet perspective, it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, their own uh, domestic oil industry has been ravaged by the war. Soviet oil production collapses in the 1940s and doesn't really recover for another decade. Um, so there was interest in developing Iranian oil and importing it into the Soviet Union to meet Soviet needs. Um, various American oil experts regard a Soviet oil concession in northern Iran uh, to make sense from a geographical standpoint. That oil can't really get uh, to Western markets, right? There's too many mountains in the way. The geographic impediments are pretty considerable. So they think, well, if the Soviets want northern Iranian oil, we should just let them have it. <laughs> um, but obviously, from the point of view of other U.S. officials, uh, officials such as George Kennan, uh, Loy Henderson in the State Department, mm. uh, George Allen, who was ambassador in Iran in 1946, the idea that the Soviets are interested in northern Iranian oil is proof that the Soviets want to incorporate Iran into their empire, for, for lack of a better term, right? This was evidence to them, to the United States, that the Soviet Union was an expansionist power that it hoped to permanently extend its sphere of influence inside Iran. Uh, and this fear is, uh, to a certain degree, confirmed in March of 1946, right? So the war is over. The British and the Americans are withdrawing their troops from Iran. But in mm. March of 46, Stalin says, Soviet troops will not leave Iran until the Soviet Union is promised an oil concession. So essentially issues an ultimatum to the Iranian government. And at the same time, Soviet forces support uh, regional separatists in Iranian Azerbaijan and northwestern Iran. They support a movement to create an Azeri and Kurdish republic. So basically, they're you know they're inside Iran and they're carving up territory. Uh, precisely what the Americans are concerned about, precisely what they were worried about, um, is coming true. So the beginning of the Cold War in Iran in 1946, really one of the earliest episodes of the Cold War takes place in Iran, uh, happens for reasons that to a certain extent make sense if you look at them from a sort of Soviet geopolitical uh, point of view, but from a U.S. point of view are very alarming. Um, eventually, the Azerbaijan crisis is resolved uh, later in 1946. Soviet troops leave. Uh, Stalin is promised an oil concession by the Iranian prime minister, Ahmad Kavam, uh, but Kavam breaks his promise <laughs> and leaves Stalin <laughs> with nothing. Uh, it's actually quite a quite a deft bit of uh, diplomacy that Kavam uh, uses. He sort of leads Stalin on, uh, and then troops go, go in and break up the separatist republics. They retake Iranian territory, and Stalin sort of gives up. You know, he, he has this idea of, of trying to seize Iranian oil and, mm -hmm. uh, give, you know, is outmaneuvered, really, by Kavam. Um, but the outcome for the United States is this, this fear, is this concern that Iran is a state threatened by Soviet expansionism, that it's threatened by Soviet influence, um, that it is a state that is weak and susceptible to communist influence, both from an external power like the Soviet Union, but also internally. That Iran's Communist Party, which was known as the Tudor Party, was well organized, was supported by Moscow, and that without U.S. help, without assistance, the Shah's government, the Pahlavi government, would eventually collapse and the Tudor would arise 
and take over Iran, as had ha- as would happen sort of in places like Czechoslovakia and elsewhere. So Iran was an important battleground in the early Cold War. Um, from the point of view of the United States, it was a critically important country strategically, um, not just because of its geographic position next to the Soviet Union, but because Iranian oil was important to the economic reconstruction of the West. It was important to the Marshall Plan and to the economic reconstruction of Japan. But also, in a wider sense, the United States worried that if Iran were to fall to communism, or if it were to fall to Soviet influence, that would immediately threaten the rest of the region. Right. right? So you would use, you would lose access to Iranian oil, but perhaps that would then cause you to lose access to Saudi, Kuwaiti, and Iraqi oil, and eventually the entire region falls to the Soviet Union. So you know the reason why the book, you know, it it deal it has the Cold War in its subtitle, and it deals with the Cold War uh, in an important sense. Iran was a very important country in the early Cold War. Uh, but what I try to argue, or what I try to emphasize, is that this Cold War fear was in many cases uh, uh, myopic for the United States. It caused right. America, it caused American officials to hone in on fears, concerns, and in some places paranoia. Uh, to the detriment of appreciating Iran's own sort of domestic political situation. Uh, and it caused the United States to eventually back the Shah and back an authoritarian government and back a particular oil-based model of economic development rather than other and potentially more viable alternatives. Yeah, it's uh, something that you see the United States right doing uh, again and again. I, I would argue much to America's detriment um, throughout the, throughout the Cold War. Um, it's just it's fascinating. The uh, the paranoia um, I think is absolutely the right word to describe it. Um, that really I think grips American policymakers um, not only in this part of the Cold War but but throughout it. Um, and it's just fascinating how they never mm-hmm. seem to really learn their lesson there. Um, <laughs> it's. You know, a big premise of the book, right, is talking about the development of Iran into a petrostate. So what is Iran's economy like in this early Cold War period? I mean, where where is state revenue coming from? How are most people making a living? What does that look like? Right. So, yeah, it's, it's an important theme of the book to understand that the petrostate doesn't just come out of nothing, right? That, right. It, that it doesn't just emerge uh, as sort of a determined outcome, that there are contingent factors, that there's agency involved in the creation of the Pahlavi petrostate, and furthermore, that that petrostate emerges from uh, a variety of different actors interacting with one another, that it's uh, Pahlavi technocrats and the Shah interacting with multinational oil companies, with Western oil companies, uh, as well as development groups in the United States. Uh, so the pet, you know, the petrostate doesn't just emerge from the mind of the Shah or from his own sort of political project. It's the result of these interactions between international actors. Mm. Uh, But to speak to your question, you know, Iran, let's say in the middle of the 20th century, uh, what I say in the book, Iran is a nation of villages, some 40,000 villages scattered across the country. It's a big country, uh, you know, 30 million people at this time, Uh, fairly, fairly significant cities such as Tehran, Esfahan, uh, Shiraz, and other Afwas uh, and other places, but primarily a rural country uh, dominated by an agricultural economy, right? Most Iranians were engaged in agriculture, in farming, or in trade of agricultural goods. There was a fairly robust marketplace economy that mostly dealt with handcraft goods and agricultural goods, uh, either for domestic consumption or for export. 
very little industry, right? Reza Shah develops certain industries in the 1930s, um, but they're mostly sort of state-run factories. There's very little privately owned industry in the 1930s or 40s. Uh, it starts to develop uh, subsequently in the 50s, 60s, and, and particularly in the 1970s. But in this early period, Iran is primarily agricultural. The big exception is the oil industry, right? By the 1940s, by 1945, 46, Iran is the largest oil producer in the Middle East. Mm. It's producing uh, around half a million barrels a day, which at the time was a tremendous amount. Mm. Um it, uh, it is exporting oil to you know, markets in Western Europe and Japan. Relatively little Iranian oil is going to the United States at this time. Um, really, relatively little Middle East oil is going to the United States at all at this period. Mm. It's mostly going to markets in Western Europe and Japan. Um, but the thing about the oil industry is that it's owned, operated, and controlled by a British corporation. Um, what I mentioned before, the Darcy Concession of 1901 allowed the British to enter Iran and to develop its oil resources. Um, and the company which forms around that concession, it's known as, originally it's called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, eventually changes its name to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company in the 1930s. Uh, we now know it today as BP. So it's a company that's still around, yeah. uh, but it's changed its name. Um, so Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, or AIOC, controlled the domestic oil industry uh, as an economic enclave, there was very little connection between the oil industry and the rest of the Iranian economy. Uh, what I argue in the book, what I show in the book, is that the main connection between the oil industry and the general economic development of Iran was the wealth being produced by the industry. These sort of early petrodollars, if you like, these early oil revenues are being fed into a program of economic development, which the Shah's government launches in the aftermath of the Azerbaijan crisis, right? In 46, 47, uh, the Shah's government announces the first seven-year plan, which is meant to be a national economic development project funded uh, at first in part from oil revenues. Subsequent economic development plans um, are funded almost entirely from oil revenues, but the important thing to note at this early period is that oil itself, as an ingredient in Iran's economy, is fairly small. It provides around 10% of the national budget. Uh, it makes up a fairly small section of Iran's GDP. It employs you know, a fairly large number of people, between 50 and 100,000 workers work in the oil industry. They make up the bulk of Iran's industrial working class. But as far as its economic imprint, Overall, it's fairly small. What the importance from oil grows over time as the revenues from oil grow, right? As the wealth mm. being produced from Iran's oil exports expands, and as the Shah's government becomes more and more interested in launching large economic development projects, they come to depend on the revenues being produced from oil. Um, and at the same time, the interest of the United States in supporting Iran's economic development project becomes closely linked to supporting the growth of Iran's oil wealth. From the United States' point of view, the only way that Iran could develop and thus ward off communism, right? Development is very much a strategic project, a cold war right. project. From the United States' point of view, the only way that Iran could develop successfully was by accessing these oil revenues. Without oil, Iran would eventually fall. 
Iran would collapse. That's a, sort of a key aspect of the book's argument, that from the United States' point of view, an Iranian petrostate was a good thing, that you needed to develop Iran's oil industry, that you needed to grow its oil wealth in order for the Pahlavi state to survive over the long term. And, and so what are some of the American or, or Western ideas about trying to integrate or Iran's oil reserves into the broader economy. I mean, what are some of the ideas that they have to try and develop this and and you know build out Iran's um, economy? Right. So yeah, this is another sort of um, uh, a key contention in the book is that nobody had no there was no one idea that kind of dominated the rest. There was a constant debate. Uh, and discourse between a variety of groups, both within and without the U.S. government and the, the Iranian government, about how you could best develop Iran. Uh, mm. And generally speaking, generally speaking, the emphasis was, as you might expect, on developing Iran's agricultural economy. Right in the 1940s and 50s and the early 60s, um, most of the attention being paid towards Iran's economic development focused on building out infrastructure. So building roads, expanding the port, uh, you know, supporting building bridges, dams, expanding access to electricity, that sort of thing. But as far as developing the economy, the emphasis was generally on expanding Iran's agricultural productivity. The focus on agriculture was important because that was the single largest economic sector in Iran. There was very little talk in this early period of building out Iran's industry. Very little talk of that within the American community, right? They mostly viewed Iran as an agrarian economy that needed to expand and develop its agricultural output in order to progress towards industrialization. Um, the interest in industry primarily came from the Shah's government. The Shah and his and his uh, sort of main advisors and technocrats were the ones pushing for industrialization more than focusing on agriculture. So this was a, a pretty important area of contention between the Shah's government, the U.S. government, and a variety of groups that become involved in Iran, the World Bank, the Ford Foundation. Um, David Lilienthal, the founder of the TVA, becomes very involved in the 1950s. He launches a big uh, development project in the province of Khuzestan that tries to merge these interests in agricultural agriculture and industry with utilizing Iran's oil and natural gas uh, uh, through a sort of a, a multi-layered hydroelectric agricultural irrigation industrial project. It's very complicated. The book goes into yeah. detail about, about how it sort of plays out. But um, there were a variety of different ideas about how you could best develop Iran. And the book argues that ultimately it was the Shah and the Shah's uh, sort of main coterie of advisors uh, who provide the chief amount of guidance and who eventually take over the development project and kick the Americans out in the mid-1960s. Uh, that's what the book sort of argues. And it argues that ultimately, uh, these various American groups had to operate within a political system and a political environment based around the interests of the Pahlavi state and the Pahlavi Shah specifically. So it's important to, to, to note that this was, you know, this was a struggle of uh, economically minded, technically minded experts, right? These advisors who are going out into the global south and trying to apply Western expertise to solve these, solve these technical problems, but who are constantly coming up against political realities that they can't overcome. It's another, so, story, story, it's another story of how, you know, sort of development is imagined to be one thing uh, in the West, right. but plays out very differently when it's, tried, when it's applied in a, in a real uh, environment. 
uh, something else that keeps happening again and again. So it's interesting yeah. <laughs> how yeah. all this is yeah. happening on a, on, a, on a micro scale here in Iran. So uh, I, I think you're kind of sort of getting to the point where you're saying that you know some of these early efforts are not really successful. And why why are these early um, strategies of development not really working out the way that um, you know American and, and Western uh, advisors and planners uh, you know think that they will? Yeah, no, it's it's another theme of the book is what does success look like? What does failure look like? And yeah. various definitions of success and failure, right? Like we're, we're dealing with a lot of different groups. There are oil companies on one side, the Iranian government on the other side, the U.S. government, uh, private development groups. Um, they all have a slightly different idea of what they want to accomplish. And some come away with more than others. Um, I have, you know, the Ford Foundation becomes very involved in Iran in the mid 1950s, focusing on agricultural development and providing expert support uh, for the Shah's development organization, which was called the Plan Organization. Uh, but in 1964, the Ford Foundation uh, unilaterally decides to cancel all of its projects in Iran and leave, and essentially say, "We can't work here. Uh, we we admit mm. defeat. <laughs> we have not been able to succeed in any of our endeavors, so we're leaving." Um, Dave Lilienthal, who I mentioned before, comes to Iran in 1954 uh, and launches a big project in 1957. Um, but by 1963, his organization has also become fairly marginalized uh, and, and doesn't really succeed on the scale that it had hoped uh, to accomplish when it set out in the mid-1950s. Uh, the World Bank, uh, uh, in an earlier period, in the late 40s, um, views Iran as a potential country uh, with which it could you know, launch a, a loan program, um, but doesn't end up extending really any money to Iran uh, in this early period because... It, it viewed the Iranian development project as mishandled, mismanaged, in need of foreign guidance um, and foreign sort of expert uh, support. Uh, and this is an area that I develop uh, to some extent, is this idea that from Western point of view, from, from a U.S. point of view, Iran, the Iranian development project, in order to succeed, needed foreign guidance, that, re- that the Iranians couldn't run their own development project successfully unless they accepted Western help. And as you might expect, the Iranians didn't see it that way. Mm. That the Shah and his sort of chief technocrats um, wanted to control their own development project and wanted to achieve their own political goals. And, you know, not only (laughs) economic development, economic development had an economic goal, right? Increase living standards, improve productivity, grow the economy. But ultimately, it was a political project to maintain the position and eventually enforce the legitimacy of the Pahlavi state. So those were those were the Shah's goals, the goals of the Shah and his chief bureaucrats. Uh, they were also eventually the chief goals of the U.S. government, right? The U.S. government goes through a process, you know, goes through a variety of stages uh, in its view, in its, uh, in its outlook for Iran. Uh, but the book concludes in the mid-1960s with this uh, sort of coming to terms inside the uh, Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, this coming to terms with what had happened in Iran uh, with the development project. And the ultimate conclusion is, well, we may not think that the development project is going the way we would like. We still think Iran needs foreign guidance. They say this in the 60s, in, the, in 63, 64. But ultimately, the Shah is in charge. He's our best bet. We should back him and let him do what he wants. Mm. So 
success for the United States had a short-term and long-term aspect. In the short term, these various development projects, these various efforts at outreach and support for the Iranian state, in the short term, they seem to have worked. The Shah in 1965, where the book ends, is in really total control of the Iranian state. He's a strong U.S. ally. The economy is finally starting to take off. It's uh, starting to industrialize fairly rapidly. GDP growth uh, is proceeding at a rate of between 8 and 10% a year, which is you know phenomenally fast, particularly in the global south in the 1960s. Oil revenues are growing. Oil production is growing. So in 1965, from the U.S. point of view, everything seems to be working out in the short term. In the long term, there are considerable doubts that the Shah's political project will succeed, that economic development will be sustainable without additional planning, without additional resources, and fundamentally without some kind of political reform, right? The book ends with the Shah as an authoritarian dictator, right? Somebody who runs right. Iran state as, as a, an authoritarian ruler. This is where the Petro state coalesces. And there are com- commentators, there are critics inside Iran and outside Iran who say, this project will not survive unless the Shah allows political reform to take place, which, of course, he never does. So success, <laughs> failure, it looks like, you know, yeah, we all know how it ends for the Shah. Right. Um, the book yeah. ends in 1965. Uh, I'm hoping to write a second book that covers 65 to 79. But, but uh, from the point of view of this story, when the Petro state emerges in the mid-1960s, it's seen as a failure by some particularly some of these developmentalists who had worked in Iran in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, and some officials within the U.S. government. But it's seen as a, and by many Iranians too. There are many Iranians who see uh, the development of this new petrostate as a bad thing, as something that can't be sustained. But for the, the, the crucial actors, the Shah and the U.S. government, this new state, this new Iran is a good thing. It fits within U.S. strategic interests, it fits within the Cold War strategic uh, arena. It seems to offer Iran's best way forward, uh, both to grow economically and also to maintain its internal political stability. Uh, so in that sense, it's a success. And crucially, I should also add something that we haven't really talked about. Within the realm of the international oil industry, Iran seems, from the point of view of the Western oil corporations, to be one of their best and closest allies compared to uh, more nationalist, more aggressive countries like Iraq or Egypt, Iran is seen as being a stable, pro-Western oil-producing state and a state with which the major companies can do business. Yeah, that's something I want to talk to you more about in a little bit is, is Iran's place in the broader international oil industry. But before we get to that, um, I was hoping we could go back a little bit and talk about some of the political problems that uh, the Shah's goals and the U.S. goals are running into, specifically in the early 1950s when you have the rise of Mohammad Mosaddegh as the, as the prime minister of Iran. Um, undoubtedly, our listeners, are, are, if they're familiar with very few things about Iran, it's, they'll probably be one of them is, is Mosaddegh. So I was wondering if you could talk about, I think, what you refer to as the Mosaddegh challenge and how his nationalization of the Iranian oil industry um, in the early 50s plays into this whole story. Absolutely. So um, I'll preface this answer by saying, uh, you know, we've recorded an episode on my other book, uh, co-authored yeah. with David S. Painter. Uh, this other book is uh, entitled uh, The Struggle for Iran, Oil Autocracy in the Cold War, 1951 to 1954. And it is a book about the Mossadegh period. 
It is about right. the nationalization crisis and the coup of 1953. So uh, uh, my answer, my subsequent answer, if it interests listeners, they should absolutely check out that other episode and buy the book. Um, uh, it's a great read and I uh, strongly recommend it. Uh, so my own book, this book, Petroleum and Progress in Iran, has a chapter on the nationalization crisis and a chapter on the coup. Uh, right. And it's important to deal with both. Um, it's impossible to understand the coup without first understanding the nationalization crisis. It's also, I would argue, impossible to understand the emergence of the Pahlavi Petro state and the nature of the U.S. relationship with the Shah and the Shah's Iran without understanding Mohammad Mossadegh's role uh, in modern Iranian history. Uh, Mossadegh emerges, he's, he's a... Uh, a key figure in Iranian politics, going back to the 1920s, right? He's a Majlis deputy, a deputy of Iran's parliament in the 1920s. He holds a variety of different government positions. In the 1930s, he goes into political exile uh, due to his opposition to Reza Shah, uh, who rules essentially as a dictator for the 1930s. Uh, Mossadegh returns to politics in the 1940s. Uh, He once again uh, takes a seat in the Majlis. Uh, He is very famous. He is regarded as incorruptible. He is arguably Iran's most famous nationalist, uh, someone who is uh, consistently arguing for Iran's independence uh, from influence of foreign powers. What I had mentioned before, this idea of positive equilibrium, certain Iranian politicians believing that you needed to work with both the Russians and the British to balance each other out. Mossadegh's view was the opposite. Mossadegh had a view of politics that he referred to as negative equilibrium that instead of working with both, you should work with neither, that Iran mm. should maintain its sort of its own independent uh, course in international affairs. And by the late 1940s, by 1949, uh, when Mossadegh forms what is known as the National Front, uh, a coalition of various political actors and groups and organizations formed around this idea of uh, negative equilibrium, formed around this idea of Iran becoming independent of foreign influence, he focuses on the issue of oil specifically and the issue of nationalizing the oil industry, which, as I mentioned, in Iran had been was owned and operated by a British oil company. So nationalization is Mossadegh's political project and uh, a variety for a variety of reasons, variety of crises that emerge in 1950 and early 1951 uh, result in Mossadegh becoming prime minister in April of 1951 and national and passing a bill through the Majlis that nationalizes the oil industry in uh, April of 1951. And this, as you might expect, causes quite a crisis. Uh, the British yeah. oil company has been nationalized. It now faces uh, expropriation by the Iranian government, although Mossadegh is very, uh, very careful to emphasize that they will pay compensation for the assets that they will be taking over. The British government regards this as an illegal act of confiscation. Iran and Iranian oil is very important to the British economy, to the British balance of payments, to British finances uh, in the post-war period. Finances which, as some of your listeners might know, were fairly unstable. Britain faces uh, you know, a period of economic uncertainty in the 1950s and looks to its control of Iranian oil as a key way to buttress its economy. So Mossadegh's nationalization is a, a, a challenge to the British position in the Middle East, to the position of the international oil industry. It's also a challenge to the United States, because the United States, as I had mentioned, was greatly concerned that Iran was threatened by communism, that Iran needed to develop, that it needed to undertake successful economic development in order to stabilize its internal political system. 
And while they, while the U.S. isn't necessarily hostile to Mossadegh, uh, there is there is a view that he is a nationalist, that he's not a communist, that he's someone who would, under the right circumstances, maintain friendly relations with the West. The U.S. is very concerned about how to handle nationalization for two reasons. One, like the British, they're worried about what nationalization will do to their ability to control Middle East oil. They're worried that if Iran nationalizes its oil industry, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq will do the same. This, of course, would threaten Western access to Middle East oil. It would threaten the position of the, cor- uh, of the major Western oil corporations, and it would threaten the success of the Marshall Plan, the economic reconstruction of the West. So that's something that the United States is very conscious of preventing. They don't want nationalization to actually result in the loss of control of Middle East oil. At the same time, and this is a a key contention of the book, this is really what I see as one of its main interventions, the United States is very worried about what will happen if, because of nationalization, Iran is unable to sell any of its oil and is therefore unable to access any of the revenues from oil production, right? The creation of oil wealth which the United States saw as a key ingredient in Iran's successful economic development, were nationalization to result in Iran being forced out of the international oil economy, Iran would be left with nothing. It wouldn't be able to sell any of its oil. It would be left with no oil revenues. It would come under economic and financial pressure. And this was something that the United States was very, very concerned about. It was very, very worried about what would happen were Iran to remain oilless, as I say in the book. So the Mossadegh challenge for the United States is how to overcome this problem, how to find a way to manage the challenge of nationalization and and, and to find a way to resolve this crisis without losing Iran to communism or allowing Iran to remain oilless, which from their point of view would eventually lead to communism. And the outcome of this is eventually the decision to overthrow Mossadegh in 1953. The failure to resolve the nationalization crisis, which I cover in chapter three, leads to the coup decision that I examine in chapter four. The two are very, very closely linked. And after the coup, the coup, which of course takes place in August of 1953, Mossadegh is overthrown. Uh, The CIA and the British intelligence uh, uh, agency works closely with a variety of Iranian actors. They eventually get the cooperation of the Shah, although he is extremely reluctant to cooperate with the coup. Uh, That's a point that I make in my book, as well as the point that David and I make in our co-authored book. After the Mm. coup, the United States forces, for all intents and purposes, forces the major oil companies to go back into Iran to sign a new agreement with the Shah's government that can restart Iran's oil industry and reintegrate Iran into the international oil economy. And I argue that while the United States was interested in maintaining control over Iranian oil, it's important to make that point, while they were interested in preventing nationalization from succeeding, they were more interested in making sure that Iran could once again enjoy the revenues from oil production, that it could once again access the stream of wealth that the companies would produce once they started to produce and export Iranian oil, and that through that oil wealth, the Shah's new government, his new post-coup government, could launch a new and successful project of economic development and could achieve stability. So the coup was ultimately about reintegrating Iran back into the global oil economy and reintegrating oil back into the Iranian economy for the point of keeping Iran from falling to communism. That's the, the argument that the 
book builds around the nationalization crisis and the August coup. Yeah, and, I, and as you say, if people want even more details about this, they should definitely check out not only our other episode, but also the book, The Struggle for Iran, that you uh, co-authored with, with David Painter. Uh, highly Indeed, recommend an, it. an exhaustive yeah. amount of detail. Exhaustive <laughs> goes amount into of this, detail, yeah. It's all it's, focused it go, on this. It explores the crisis and the coup in, in, in tremendous detail. So if anyone's interested yeah. in reading more about that, I strongly recommend uh, checking out the other book. Absolutely. Um, so after the coup... You know, you were just touching on it at the end there. What is the economic development that's really driven by, as you say, the reintegration of oil into Iran's economy, into the American economy? How does development look after the coup and now that the Shah has been um, – they always say he's kind of brought back to power even though he's not – he never leaves, right? But, you know, his power is is greatly strengthened by the removal of Mossadegh. Um what uh, what does development look like now that Mossadegh's been removed um, at the end of 1953? So, yeah, so so the heyday of the development project is this 1953 to 1965 period. Um, Iran is able to enjoy oil revenues in considerable quantities uh, by around 1957. It takes about three or four years for the um, oil industry to get sort of back up and running. Um at the same time, the Shah is receiving considerable economic and particularly military financial aid from the United States. Um, a large amount of aid is coming into the country through Point Four and through the military assistance uh, program. Um, so he's also able to draw on that support. Um, and as you say, the Shah, uh, he does leave Iran briefly in August of 53. He, he uh, uh, flees the country after the first initial coup attempt fails. Uh, he comes back um, after the second coup attempt succeeds. And he had been around in Iran throughout the whole Mossadegh period and before, but it's the coup that allows the Shah to achieve preeminence within Iran's political system. Right? The right. United States brings the Shah back in 53, and the Shah himself, I would argue, uses that as an opportunity to solidify his position of centrality within Iran's political system. So Iran, you know, the Shah as ruler of Iran is something that really only comes to be in the, the, the post-coup period. But as far as the development project goes, the, Shah launch, the Shah's government launches what's known as the second seven-year plan in 1956. Uh, the second, the first seven-year plan, which the book uh, uh, describes in chapter two, never really got off the ground. It was kind of a, an abortive attempt at economic development. It, it doesn't really succeed largely because of the nationalization crisis and the, the shutdown of the oil industry that happens. So the second seven-year plan is a much more concerted, much more deliberate uh, effort to use oil revenues for the purposes of economic development. Um, and the second seven-year plan runs from 1956 to uh, 1962. Um, and it succeeds in certain uh, aspects. Uh, they build a lot of infrastructure. Uh, it's a very constructive-based uh, uh, project. Um, there's the operation, there's the project launched by David Lilienthal, which I explore in Chapter 5, um, that attempts to develop the province of Khuzestan around a series of uh, um, multi-purpose dams linking agriculture and irrigation to oil and natural gas production, while also sort of helping to support new Iranian industries. So it's it's a little bit of that. <laughs> it's also <laughs> agricultural projects. It's it's uh, new irrigation projects. It's new dams. But the thing about the second seven year plan is that it's very messy. Uh, it's a plan that doesn't really have a plan, 
as one State Department official puts it. And the reason mm. for that is while the Shah places uh, his chief technocrat, um, Abdul Hossein Ebtehaj, uh, who's a key uh, character in the book, Ebtehaj is the managing director of the plan. He's kind of the key architect of the plan. But at the same time, he's competing with other officials within the Shah's government who are launching their own little development projects. He is competing with people like Lilienthal, who set up their own little enclaves. Uh, you know, the, the Lilienthal project is sort of a development project unto itself. It's receiving planned funds, but it's sort of doing its own thing. Um, there's a blossoming of corruption uh, within the Shah's government that happens during this time, primarily because so much money is flooding into the country. Um, and the development project lacks a coherent vision and ultimately enters a period of crisis by the early 1960s because with so many projects being launched, with so many new programs being attempted, Iran, by the early 1960s, outruns its resources. So you go from having a lot of money to suddenly have, not having enough. And this causes a foreign exchange crisis in 1960. It causes a budget crisis, um, which then creates a political crisis that's explained in the final chapter of the book. Uh, so the, the key thing to understand about development within Iran in this period is that it, it tries to do a lot and gets pulled in a lot of different directions because there are so many actors involved. And the key outcome of that sort of chaos is a political crisis that the Shah then resolves by seizing total control of the state and mm. seizing total control of the development project through what he calls the White Revolution. The White Revolution, which is this political program that he launches in 1963, that is also an attempt to redirect the political emphasis of the development project in a way that suits the Shah's own political ambitions. So that's that's sort of how the book concludes um, by arguing that, you know, this previous and more chaotic period of development produces some successes, produces quite a lot of failures, but what it ultimately produces is a environment conducive to allowing the Shah to take total control of the state. Um, and this, this then produces the petrostate that is uh, uh, in place and is consolidated by the mid-1960s and is dominated by not just the person, but the personality of the Shah. The American developmentalists are pushed out. Lilienthal and others are pushed out. Other technocrats who had exercised quite a bit of influence within the development project, they are marginalized. And by 1965, mm. it's really just the Shah in total control. What during this period, you know, as the Shah is consolidating his control over the Iranian state, um, what's the place of Iran within the broader international uh, oil economy and, and really also within OPEC, you know, the uh, sort of emerging oil cartel? How, where does Iran figure into both of those things? Yeah, so I, I deal with um, the issue of OPEC and Iran's place in OPEC in chapter six of the book. Uh, so people who are interested in that, uh, uh, fear not. Uh, I, I get to that in the in the final chapters of the book. And Iran is a very interesting player in the international oil industry because it has, you know, the, after the coup of 53 uh, and the new oil agreement, what's called the Consortium Agreement of 1954, this is the moment where Western corporations, uh, after considerable prodding by the U.S. government, Western oil corporations come back into Iran. Um, AIOC, now known as BP, gets 40% of the concession, uh, but the remaining 60% is divvied out among all of the other major companies. So you have Exxon, Chevron, Mobil, Texaco, Gulf, 
uh, Shell, all of them are present working in Iran from 1954 all the way to the revolution, really, all the way until 1979. Um, so they're all present in Iran. They're all working to restart Iran's oil industry. And the Shah, as you can, as you might understand, as you might be able to uh, uh, to sympathize with, is is pretty hostile to the companies. Uh, he doesn't really like the idea that uh, you know Mossadegh is this nationalist hero for nationalizing the the oil industry. Mossadegh is overthrown, uh, and the Shah is the one who has to bring the companies back in uh, in order to bring the oil industry back online in order to supply his government with revenues. So he needs the companies. He's also very interested in Iran's oil production. Uh, He wants Iran to produce and sell a lot of oil because he sees it as a key uh, ingredient in Iran's successful, not only its successful economic development, but also as a way to build up uh, Iran's military power. This is, of course, something that the Shah is extremely interested in over the course of his reign is developing Iran's military. So he needs oil revenues that are being produced by the company's operations, but he doesn't like the fact that the companies control the oil industry, not him. So this creates a very interesting dynamic that I explore in chapter six, wherein the Shah illustrates what I call performative petro-nationalism. So on the one hand, he plays at being the nationalist in rhetoric in high-profile gestures. He offers new concessions to smaller oil companies. He breaks uh, the 50-50 concession uh, profit-sharing mechanism. You know, he's, he sort of grandly and very uh, publicly does what he can uh, to appear hostile or appear uh, opposed to the presence of these Western corporations in Iran. He joins OPEC in 1960. Uh, he exerts uh, quite a lot of influence in OPEC. The first OPEC secretary general, Fuad Rouhani, is one of the Shah's oil advisors. Uh, so Iran is a, a pivotally important player in the early history of OPEC, as it is in uh, OPEC's later history. At the same time, and largely behind the scenes, the Shah works quite closely with the oil companies to undermine and eventually uh, somewhat neuter OPEC in the early 1960s, uh, largely in order to ensure Iran's favorable treatment by the companies. So the companies, these big companies, they're running the oil industries in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, and they get to decide who produces what, right? They're in charge of setting production levels in all these different countries. And the Shah makes it very clear to these companies, if you help me, if Iran is treated favorably, I will work to bring about moderate policies in OPEC, I will keep you, you know, I will keep you where you are. I will protect your position. If you help me, I'll help you. So it's a very transactional relationship. And the companies come under quite a bit of pressure to be nice to the Shah, to do things that the Shah wants. They come under quite a bit of pressure from the U.S. government because the U.S. government's main concern is to ensure the stability of the Shah's government and to ensure the economic development of Iran. And the best way to do that is to... uh, support the growth of Iranian oil production and the growth of Iranian oil revenues. So in many ways, the U.S. government sides with the Shah and with Iran more so than it does with the companies. I have a great, uh, I have a quote from a meeting where the the chairman of Exxon and Mobil go to meet President Lyndon Johnson in June of 1964. This comes towards the end of the book. They meet with President Johnson and Johnson tells them, you know, the Shah is very important. Iran is a very important country to the free world. You have to do everything you can to keep it from going down the drain. 
And uh, the chairman of Exxon later says, uh, you know, in a, in a subsequent meeting, he says, as we all know, President Johnson can be very persuasive. <laughs> so he, he, a little bit of that famous Johnson treatment was meted out. Oh, yeah. Uh, but for, you know, but for the for the benefit of the Shah, for the benefit of Iran. So uh, Iran's place in the international oil economy is a very interesting one. I would also note that, you know, the Shah is doing this for uh, self-interested reasons. He's doing it because it helps his own position. But he's also doing it because he knows Iran can benefit from a closer relationship with the companies. And uh, this isn't covered by the book because the book ends in 1965. But over the course of subsequent years, the Shah gets more and more skillful at pressuring the companies, at getting Mm. more money, at getting more production. And he eventually reaches the point in the early 1970s where the Shah is able to dictate to the companies what they need to do for him. And the companies really have no choice but to acquiesce. That's the degree to which he's sort of grown in importance. That's the degree to which Iran has grown in influence within the international oil economy. So it's this process by which the companies who are in total control in 1954, it's this very slow, gradual process by which the companies are losing out to sovereign governments, not just in Iran, but elsewhere. One executive refers to it as a rear guard action. Right. We're very slowly giving ground to national governments. So in a way, you know, Mossadegh nationalizes in 1951. The nationalization is a failure. Mossadegh is deposed, is overthrown. The Shah returns to power. But the Shah continues Mossadegh's original goal, which was to eventually take national control over the national oil industry. And while he's not successful at doing that up until 1965, what he is successful at is leveraging his position to gain more favorable treatment from the companies, which then contributes to Iran's growing oil production, its growing oil wealth. And this, of course, is a crucial ingredient in the production of the Pahlavi petrostate, right? Without this comfortable relationship, without the assistance of the companies, Iran would not have gained access to such oil wealth, the kind of oil wealth that it enjoyed by the mid 1960s. So this dynamic is very important uh, within yeah. the book and within uh, within sort of the progress the Shah's government makes through this period. It's fascinating how the uh, Western oil companies, you know, in particular the American ones, you know, facilitate the Shah's rise, and then he, you know, sort of uh, turns on them in a way, um, which I think is really fascinating. At the same time, you know, using them to, you know, obviously grow his country's economy and like consolidate his own power. It's a really fascinating dynamic, as you said. I would, yeah, it is a fascinating dynamic. And I would stress that, you know, that there are times, there are readings of this history which tend to grant the companies considerable influence, right? The companies are, are, are at times believed to be kind of orchestrating U.S. foreign policy from behind the scenes, right? There's all these beliefs mm-hmm. that you know, the Deldas brothers or others are working at the behest yeah. of the international oil industry. And I, you know, doing the research for this book, going through the archives, uh, it can be difficult to do research on the oil industry because there aren't many archival sources that you can get access to. Um, but right. going into the documents of international oil companies, I very often find them to be fairly weak actors, actors mm. who are, you know, they're and they're not interested in the things that governments are interested in. Right. At the end of the day, a corporation like Exxon or BP is interested in preserving profits, returning value to its shareholders and retaining the value of its assets, right? Oil companies are interested in controlling oil because by controlling oil, you can manage profits. You can ensure that supply and demand are being met and you can achieve 
you know, commercial ends. These are commercial organizations. So very often when, you know, you track the company's interactions in the international sphere, the sphere of international relations, uh, they're coming under pressure from the U.S. government. They're coming under pressure from the Shah's government. And very often they just have to yield. They just have to give up. Right. And go with the, you know, the whatever, whichever way the wind is blowing is the direction that they sort of have to lean in. So I hope that the book, those who read the book will come away with a somewhat more nuanced understanding of how the international oil industry worked during this time and how it interacted with these issues of international diplomacy, not just within Iran, but uh, more globally, more generally as well. You know, by the end of this period, by the end of the, the the time that you talk about in the book, you know what what's the American perspective on Iran? I mean, what's the what's the U.S. viewpoint on the Shah and Iran's place within uh, not only the international oil economy? I mean, you kind of talked about that a little bit already, but also within the broader Cold War international system. Yeah, this is um the end point of the book is uh is, is actually one of my favorite parts of the book, um, and it it mm. looks at the dialogue going on. Uh, within the U.S. government, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1963, 1964, in the wake of the Shah's White Revolution. Uh, the White Revolution was the Shah's sort of bid for total political control over Iran's political system. Um, it succeeds largely. The Shah emerges sort of unscathed from the White Revolution. He's, he's able to quell the major sources of opposition. Uh, he emerges as sort of the key uh, central political figure. Uh, he also takes control of the development project and redirects development funds in new directions. He sidelines Western technocrats. He sidelines advisors who had previously worked with uh, the U.S. government to kind of influence the direction of Iran's economic development. He emerges, for all intents and purposes, as a dictator, really. Right. And this elicits this elicits a number of very interesting reactions from within the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. There are those who take the Shah's uh, project, the White Revolution, and hold it up as a beacon of hope. They say that the Shah is now a revolutionary monarch, that he is finally taking control and directing the course of Iran's modernization in a favorable direction, that this is a good thing, right? That the Shah is, he has emerged as the leader that we want him to be. Never mind that he's, you know, that there are no free elections, that there's no assembly, that, you know, other political uh, factions are being repressed. What we should focus on is the fact that the Shah is now stepping up and creating the kinds of stability that we want to see. So that's one that's one direction. That's one uh, uh, you know, opinion that's being expressed. Another opinion that's expressed uh, by Kennedy Johnson officials like Robert Comer uh, is more concern. Uh, Comer in particular is very concerned that without active U.S. pressure, Right. Without, without, he, he was one of these officials who wanted the United States to be actively involved in controlling Iran's development project. Right? He wanted uh, figures uh, and advisors and experts inside Iran who would pressure the Shah to do what the United States wanted him to do. Comer saw the White Revolution and the subsequent course of Iran's development project as very concerning because he didn't think Iran would be able to manage it successfully. He didn't think the Shah would be able to succeed as a dictator, that Iran ultimately needed some kind of political reform, some kind of reform that would allow the United States to exert more influence. Uh, so those were kind of the competing schools, uh, the competing visions. And what eventually emerges as the consensus, uh, which is really it's summed up by a memo written by um, Dean Rusk in 1963, 
uh, Secretary of State Dean Rusk. And Rusk uh, concludes that we've tried over the last 20 years to influence Iran's development project and to influence the course of the Shah's uh, political project. We've tried over the last 20 years and we've mostly failed. What we should do now is take a step back, acknowledge that the Shah is in control of Iran, that he is enjoying access to oil wealth, that he's uh, accepting a lot of U.S. weapons, <laughs> that he's going to buy a lot of U.S. weapons, that that will help uh, our current balance of payments problem, um, that he is still pro-Western, even if he is putting, even if he's pushing aside the kinds of moderate pro-Western technocrats that we support, even if he's doing that and acting more and more like a dictator, that ultimately he will maintain Iran's pro-Western strategic alignment, and we want to see that. We should accept the limitations of our policy and hope that the Shah succeeds over the long term. Essentially, what the United States does in the mid-1960s is give up and accept that non-interference with the Shah's development project is the best course of action moving forward. Um, So while there are those within the U.S. government, and particularly subsequent uh, subsequent ambassadors to Iran who come in in the late 1960s, early 1970s, these figures generally see the Shah as uh, uh, kind of the poster child for Western, for pro-Western modernization in the global South. They see the Shah as a tremendous success. Uh, there's one advisor who writes in, there's one ambassador who writes in 1965 that, you know, we have helped Iran stand on its own feet, that the only way to understand Iran is to understand the Shah, and that this is a success, that U.S. policy has succeeded. That's one sort of form of discourse. There's another form that runs from 1965 all the way to 1979 that says the Shah is living on borrowed time, that he needs to undertake some kind of reforms, that the development project remains uneven, that it remains mired in corruption, that too much money is flowing towards projects of uh, dubious economic benefit, and that eventually, if faced by a serious crisis, the Shah's government is too unstable to survive. So the book concludes on this note of discord <laughs> and really discontent that that there are those within the U.S. government and sort of the Western Western media, Western governments more generally, who are very pro Shah. Who are you know James Bill, the historian James Bill calls them calls it Palavism. This idea that oh the Shah should be looked to as a as a, a positive leader. And they kind of take over the discourse in the 1960s and, and 1970s. But at the same time, there is this underlying current of discontent and concern uh, and predictions that are being made uh, throughout the 1960s and early 70s that eventually the Shah's political project and economic development project uh, uh, was too unstable to sustain itself, would eventually collapse. Um, and that's the note that the book ends on. <laughs> and it's a, it's a theme that I'm hoping to explore in my in my next book, which will cover uh, the subsequent period, 1965 to 1979. Well, I think that's a great place uh, for us to end our conversation. Um, the book is Petroleum in Progress in Iran, Oil Development in the Cold War. Um, the author is Greg Brew, um, who you've just been listening to, um, fabulously described the very many nuanced threads and themes of this book. I highly recommend it. It was published in December 2022 with Cambridge University Press, and you can buy it now. So, Greg, as always, thanks so much for coming on. Fabulous discussion. Thank you so much, Grant.